And Father, we, um, we count it a privilege to be able to come with boldness before your throne of grace and offer up these praises, these sacrifices of praises, which I pray, Father, have ascended before you like a sweet-smelling aroma, a sweet savor offering to you. Because, Father, you are worthy to receive our praises. You are worthy to, um, to have us bow before you and with heartfelt, genuine adoration acknowledge your greatness. I pray, Father, we'll continue to worship you now as we open up your word and that your spirit would lead us and direct us and guide us and shape us, Father, and transform us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And again, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad you are here. Well, next uh, Sunday is another Super Bowl Sunday. Time just goes fast. Number 52, 52nd Super Bowl. And of course, at the end of the game, one team is going to be awarded the coveted a trophy, the Lombardi Trophy, named, of course, after the legendary coach, Vince Lombardi. It must have been quite a, quite a uh, coach to get the granddaddy of them all trophies named after you, Vince Lombardi Trophy. Of course, it is said that one of the reasons that made Lombardi such a great legendary coach was his obsession with the fundamentals, his obsession with the basics, um, taking his players, even salted, seasoned old veterans, and teaching them again how to block, <laughs> how to tackle the basics, the fundamentals, never assuming, learning how to carry a football, how to catch a football. He drove home all the time the basics, the fundamentals. It is said that the beginning of every season, he'd, he'd get his team together, they'd take a knee in front of him, and uh, he would stand before them and raise a football and would say, gentlemen, this is a football, starting with the fundamentals, starting with the basics, and then building from there. When Jesus was about to leave this earth and ascend into heaven, he gathered his team together, his disciples together. And he said, now go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'll be with you always. For 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been fulfilling that mandate, go and make disciples. In the front of our program each week, the bulletin, we put our mission statement there. Prepare and deploy dependent disciples of Jesus Christ who change their world for Christ as they are being changed by Him. Go and make disciples. But every so often we need to pause and ask the, the most fundamental question relating to discipleship. What is a disciple? What is one of these birds we're supposed to go make a disciple? What do they look like? And so for the next few weeks, that is what we're going to be doing. I'll be starting a, a series of studies on the book of Isaiah in a few weeks, 
I need more time to figure it out yet. Uh, and that's probably more truth than, than anything. But I wanted to, to take a couple of weeks, though, and build a little bit on the area of discipleship. We've, we've launched our home center. We've talked over the number of weeks about the importance of disciple-making at home, the importance of parents discipling their kids. It starts there at home. Uh, but what is a disciple? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at those fundamentals of what constitutes a disciple, to sit hopefully at the feet of Jesus and have him say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a disciple. And so we'll look at those key passages. But before we get to those gospel texts, this morning I want to lay again some foundation, um, just review some important truths that uh, it is review. We've talked about these things many times. Two key terms like the term justification. It's a word that means to acquit or to declare right. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this term is true of you. Jesus came to this earth and he took upon himself our sin. He died in our place because our sin was placed on him. He died and rose again. And the Bible makes it very clear that in his death, our sin was transferred to his account. Our ledger account read free of sin because it was transferred over to the ledger account of Jesus Christ. But in exchange, he, get, he gets our sin, but we get his righteousness. In that grand transaction the Bible talks about, Christ's righteousness comes over to our ledger account. It's a wonderful thing. All freely given to us because of His grace. All received simply by believing the good news about Jesus. Our sin on His account, His righteousness gets over to our account. And so when God the Father looks down on our ledger account, the God, as it were, in His judicial robes, in his judicial setting, he sees the righteousness of Christ on our account and he declares us to be right. He acquits us of all crimes. It's a declaration by Almighty God that we are right and have a right standing before him, all because of his grace and mercy. That's justification. But there's this word sanctification. That's a word that means to make holy. It's the process by which we become in our daily practice what our ledger account says is true of us, righteous. It's the ongoing progressive work of God's people becoming more and more holy, more and more Christ-like, more and more shaped and fashioned and conformed into the image of Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. That's sanctification an ongoing progressive work to make us look more like Jesus, to conform us into holiness. And so we could say, well, justification is a one-time act. Sanctification is that ongoing process. Justification is done for us. We had nothing to do with it. Jesus did all the work, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, the grand transaction, the imputation of our sin to his account, his righteousness to our account, that was done for us. Sanctification is what is done in us. 
Justification declares us righteous. The declaration of a holy God, sanctification, is that ongoing work that makes us practically in our day-to-day living righteous. Justification has to do with our position in Christ, how God views us because we are in Christ, because of our life is hidden with Christ, and what happened to Jesus happened to us, our position in Christ. But sanctification has to do with our practice, how we're living this life on this earth. Justification frees us from the guilt of sin. There is therefore now no guilt, because on our ledger account is the righteousness of Christ. But sanctification frees us from that pollution of sin in our daily experience. Justification saves us from sin's penalty. It's been erased. Jesus took that for us. The wrath of God was meted out against his son on the cross. Jesus took the penalty in our behalf. And he offers us the free gift of eternal life. But sanctification is needed. Sanctification is that daily work of freeing us from sin's power on that daily basis. But there's a, a bit of a quandary related to this whole theme of sanctification. It could be a bit confusing because in one sense, the Bible teaches that we already are sanctified. That's why he calls us saints. Now, I realize I don't know if you looked in a mirror recently, but you may not look much like a saint this morning. But according to God's Word, we are saints of the Most High. He can write a letter to the, like a Corinthian church that was all full of problems and messed up. And he writes to the saints at Corinth because, again, on that ledger account is the righteousness, the holiness of Christ on our account. We are in Christ positionally holy. We have been sanctified. And it's also true, according to uh, a passage like uh, 1 John chapter 3, it's not um, evident what we shall be, but he says when he appears, we know that we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. There is a sense in which in a coming day when we put off this mortality and put on immortality, when this body of sin is done away with, Paul says in Romans 7, we'll stand in his presence and we will be like him, free of sin's clutches forever, because this mortal will have put on immortality. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches us that. But it's this in-between time that the Bible devotes a lot of time to. The ongoing process in our daily existence while we're walking this earth of living out a holy life. This past week, our congregation lost a a dear saint of the Lord, Dorothy Stewart. Dorothy and Richie had been married 67 years, and Dorothy went home to be with the Lord. The moment Dorothy trusted Christ as her Savior decades ago, uh, she was sanctified. She was justified. She was declared right and holy in the eyes of God. When she slipped from this earth into eternity this last week, it was a done deal the moment she trusted Christ because Jesus Christ had secured her pardon and her freedom from sin. 
And when she came into the presence of the Lord, she was made like him. And that old body was shed, and, and um, she's in the presence of the Lord. However, if she was here today, she would tell you that the in-between time was an ongoing work of becoming more and more like Jesus. Our sanctification is rooted and based in our justification. Our justification is the beginning of the process. And so our becoming holy is rooted and grounded in that. But now, here's the confusing part. Our sanctification isn't necessarily guaranteed by our justification. That is, our present development of holiness is not necessarily guaranteed in this life. Uh, we can look at a passage, for instance, like uh, Colossians chapter 1. Let me just read it, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He's talking about every believer in Jesus Christ. The moment of faith, we're reconciled to him, and his work of grace begins in our life. And his goal is to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. But then verse 23 adds, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You see, it's, there's a conditional phrase there. If indeed you continue firmly established. We are going to be glorified one day, Romans chapter 8. We're called, we're justified, and these he justified, he is glorified. It's past tense. It's this present work of becoming holy that has profound impact on eternity. We'll get to that in just a moment. You see, this is why the Apostle Peter and his epistle commands us, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, Peter obviously understood as he writes this letter to a suffering church, born-again believers who are going under Roman persecution. He obviously understands that it's possible, it's possible for these early believers to fall back again to their former lusts, which were theirs in ignorance. And so he commands them, he calls them, be holy, live a holy life. And you see, God is not willing to waste holy Scripture to command us to do something that would be obvious and a sure thing anyway. This is a legitimate call to holy living. Sanctification should be a progressive work. It should be a progressive work of ever increasingly becoming like Jesus, of living a holy life. But unfortunately, it can stall out. And instead of progressing into practical holiness day by day, a believer in Jesus Christ can actually do a U-turn and regress or retrogress back. 
That's what was happening in the early church that the writer of Hebrews wrote to. In chapter 5, he said, concerning him, we have much to say. And he's been writing about an Old Testament figure by the name of Melchizedek. And he's actually been preaching, preaching it. And he's been teaching and preaching about Melchizedek. And all of a sudden, he looks out in the audience and their eyes are starting to glaze over and they're just kind of, it's going right past them. And he says, this is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. What had happened? Oh, they had started out well, but something had happened. Persecution, troubles, trials, the pressure of life as a follower of Jesus in that particular time period, and they were caving under that pressure. They began to retrogress back. It happened in the Corinthian church as well. I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. As we have often said, you want to know what a Christian is capable of doing? Read everything we're commanded not to do. It gives us a pretty good idea what we're capable of doing. A life of holiness? Oh, that's God's plan. That's his call and desire for our life. But along the way, we can falter. Along the way, that progressive work can end, can come to a screeching halt. Recall our study this past year in the book of Galatians? Same thing happened. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a, for a different gospel. I'm just shocked. You started out well, but all of a sudden you did a U-turn. What happened? He says in chapter 3, you, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Retrogression, a turning around, the sanctification process had somehow come to a screeching halt. Um, sadly, this seems to be more the norm in the early church than the exception. You, you go to the book of Revelation, and, and you, you remember the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and chapter 3, and it starts with the, the, that book, of, uh, the church to uh, Ephesus. Man, they were on fire for Jesus. They loved him with a passionate love. And, and then all of a sudden he writes and says, what happened? You've lost your first love. Man, you were heading down this road, and what, what, now you're going this way. Church of Laodicea, you're, you're neither hot nor cold. I just, you're lukewarm. I just, I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. Other churches were struggling with false teaching, had succumbed to false teaching, had embraced it and materialism. And Jesus warns them, I'm going to come and remove the lampstand. What had happened? Where's the progressive sanctification? Where's this movement forward? 
You see, our journey as a Christian begins at the moment of faith. And we are justified and declared right. And the free gift of eternal life becomes ours. There's nothing we do. It's faith and faith alone through His grace. But it's not meant to end there. There is a call to progressive holy living, to live out in our day-to-day practice what we really are by our position in Christ. We are called to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We're called to put aside childish things and move on to maturity. But for progressive growth into Christ-likeness, for sanctification, for growth in holiness to take place, something called discipleship has to happen in our life. A person who is progressively growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, who is progressively being shaped and fashioned into Christ-likeness, this person is, is called a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's God's desire for our life. The moment we are justified, at the moment of our faith, we are a believer in Jesus Christ. We become a part of his forever family. But that ongoing work of sanctification, this defines a disciple. Let me say it this way. Receiving eternal life is a free gift that's given to us at the moment of faith. Experiencing eternal life in this world is contingent upon our growth as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we get there? How does it happen in our life? Well, there's some key players that come together to work that holy living in our life that make it a reality. The players of our sanctification, of course, it starts with God's role in our sanctification. God has given us His Word. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The key and tool of renewal is the Word of God. And so he gives us the living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword Word of God that cuts deep right down and exposes our sinful thoughts and intents of the heart. It's, his, it's the power of his Word. And then, of course, his very presence within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit conforms us through the Word into the image of Christ The fruit of the Spirit becomes manifested in our life. He does that work. It's a work of His grace in our life. As Paul said to the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by your own efforts alone? No, it's the work of God in our life. But God's plan for our our sanctification, our holiness, is not just that we remain passively idle and just kind of let him ooze out of us so that somehow mysteriously it's just Jesus oozing out of us in some passive way. God plays his role and we play our role. Like the old hymn says, trust and obey 
for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. You trust and obey. There's a call on the believer's life for obedience, obedient living. I mentioned earlier, you want to know what a believer is capable of doing? Read everything in the Scriptures that tell us what not to do. But if you want to know what a believer is capable of doing, read everything that the Scriptures tell us to do and call us to be obedient in. Now, obviously, it's a cooperative effort. God calls us to obey, to step out in faith. This is what the Word says. He calls us to a life of obedience, a life of holiness. So we step out in faith. And then He empowers us and enables us through His presence. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1. And so we work together obediently, and He empowers us, and we move forward in the holiness process, the sanctification process. Jesus said in John chapter 17, in His final prayer, His high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. But we must study to show ourselves approved unto God. We must be men and women who study and know truth and believe it. God's role and my role, and then, of course, there is the the church's role, other people's role. And, of course, as we've talked about in a number of uh, previous weeks, it starts at the home. Parents are the primary disciple-makers of their children. It starts at home. And it works itself out into the life of the church. God has not designed us to live our lives in isolation. We need each other. He has designed us to be a part of of authentic fellowship. In just a a few weeks, the first full week in March, we're going to be having here the Authentic Fellowship Conference that's hosted by our counseling team. It'll be our third conference. We're not calling it a counseling conference. We're calling it Authentic Fellowship because it's something every believer in Jesus Christ should be a part of how we can move into each other's lives and fulfill all those one another's, you know, love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. I mean, obviously, that can't happen here. You're, you're sitting there looking at the back of someone else's head, you know, and I'm, I, I'm one person up here flapping his gums, exhorting and admonishing. But in a small group, in a community group, authentic fellowship can take place. It can take place as, as one believer meets with another believer for coffee. It can take place as a, in, a, in a women's Bible study or a men's group or, or within your community as believers gather. And there's just that love shared. There is that maybe a, a word fitly spoken that's shared. It's in the context of relationship that our sanctification, that our, our holiness our Christ-likeness is, is, is formed and transformed. And at, and at this conference in a few weeks, we want to uh, further equip us all. This is something for all of us to be a part of. And we'll get more information out there and, and, um, in, 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 in a little bit. But um, that's authentic fellowship because we need each other in each other's life. We have upstairs today opportunities for you to sign up for a community group. Get involved in a small group, and there's opportunities. Call the church office. We'll help plug you in. Because according to the Scriptures, I'll guarantee you, that process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, just is not going to happen as we live our life in a vacuum. We need each other. That's the church's role. 
God's role and my role and other people's role, but there's also suffering's role. It's one of the biggest things God uses to bring about holiness in our life. It's just the, the, the work in the midst of hardships and the pain of life, the work of, of God in our life to shape us and fashion us into Christ's likeness. And one of the greatest tools that he uses is, is suffering. This is what uh, James was writing about, wasn't he? In James chapter 1, he's writing to the early church, the first epistle written, and they're coming under persecution. And he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations and suffering, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he says, let that endurance have its perfect result, that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's Christ-likeness. Let it have its result, its desired work, which is shaping and fashioning us into the image of Christ. Helping us look more like Jesus. It's the work of sanctification, of holiness that takes place. And yeah, it hurts. And yeah, it's painful. But that's where spiritual growth comes in. That's where the Christ-like life is lived. This is what uh, Peter was saying in his... Um, First epistle, chapter 1, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. He's talking about getting to heaven, the free gift of one day getting to heaven. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, knowing, he says, knowing that the, the and that's the same idea that we just read in James, that the proof of your faith the testing of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, persecution, sorrows, heartaches of life, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Suffering. Rejoice in it, he said, even though it's difficult, even though now for a little while it's, it's, it's going into the fire. But he said, there is great potential. Great, great potential for what? That you may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is written in what's called a subjunctive mood. In the Greek text, it means there's doubt applied to this. It, it's no guarantee that going through suffering and sorrow and hardship is going to result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ returns. And by the way, whose praise, glory, and honor is he talking about here? Yours. To stand before the king, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering. But there may not be any praise or glory or honor for the believer in Jesus Christ if we don't endure the suffering. And what's going to help us endure the suffering? He says in verse 8, the next verse, and though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the deliverance of your souls. 
to stand before him one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, Peter is saying depends how we're responding to the trials. With joy inexpressible, full of glory, with a heart of love to him, believing in him as we go through and walk through the difficulties of life. If we do, that's called a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that, he wonderfully shapes and transforms us and conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's a progressive holiness. It's, it's sanctification takes place. But it hurts. It's trials. It's suffering. There's God's role and my role and the other people's roles in my life and that help me see my blind spots and and they're suffering. And God works all of these things to help fashion us along the road of discipleship, of sanctification. If, if we receive it in faith, we endure and live that life of faith, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and completer of our faith. But Peter and James and the Apostle Paul would say there's, there's no guarantee of that progressive work of sanctification. Oh, there is the joy of heaven. But how we live in eternity, how we serve the King, how we'll be used in eternity is dependent on how the sanctif sanctification process is going on right now. Let me share with you one other verse that teaches this ultimate blessing of sanctification. It's in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, makes this rather incredible statement. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness or the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. He's writing to believers in Jesus Christ. He's writing to the church who's going through suffer, uh, suffering and persecution because of the name of Christ. He's calling them to, to run the race with endurance, fixing their eyes upon Jesus. That's what he said earlier in the chapter, chapter 12. He's calling people who have kind of slipped up, and as we saw earlier in chapter 5, they, they are retrogressing. They're kind of, that, that uh, sanctification process has gotten stalled by this time, you ought to be teachers, but you got to go back to the basics again. And he's concerned for them. But he's telling them in chapter 12, but you have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And like any father whom the Lord loves, he's going to discipline. That's part of the sanctification process. That's part of God's work is the discipline process. He said in verse 10 of chapter 12, for they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of our earthly fathers, but he disciplines us for our good. Why? Purpose clause, so that we may share his holiness. God cares of how we're living our life on this earth. All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful. I got that right, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of, of righteousness. 
That's sanctification. It's, it's living out in our practice what we are by our position. Declared right before God's eyes, but made right through this ongoing work of His Word, of His Spirit, of our obedience, of other people in our lives, of suffering. And it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so he says in verse 14, pursue peace with all men. And that holiness, there's an article there, the, sanctif- the, the one I just talked to you about, that progressive work of, of becoming more and more holy, of be, looking more and more like Jesus, pursue that. Because second of all, he says, without it, you don't, you don't see the Lord. Now, I realize we read that verse and we can say, oops, does that mean you're not going to get to heaven? No, <laughs> it doesn't. You see, the word here, to see the Lord, is a word that has the idea of, of intimate understanding uh, of a relationship, of an experience of God. It's not just standing, oh, you're never going to see Jesus, but if you act that way, He's saying, you're never going to experience, you're never going to enter into and understand and perceive the greatness, the glory of God and all His joy and all that He has for us if that work of holiness isn't taking place in your life. Experiencing, Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you in abundance. It's seeing God in all His glory Peter was, in Luke chapter 5, had been called by Jesus to be a disciple, he and his brother Andrew. And weeks later, weeks later after being called, Peter and James and John are in a boat fishing. They're not catching a single fish, and all, of, all night they'd been fishing, and Jesus is, comes in the early morning. He's preaching on the shores of Galilee, and the mass of humanity is there listening to him preach, and Peter's cleaning nets that were empty. How embarrassing is that? And, and then Jesus tells Peter, hey, let's go fishing. Oh, Lord, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught a thing, but at your bidding, all right, I'll, let's go out. And he said, put down your nets for a catch. And Peter does that. And the nets are so full of fish that they begin to break. He has to call James and John over to help load the fish up. And then it dawns on Peter. He begins to see Jesus like he'd never saw him before. And he says, oh, depart from me, my Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And he began to see himself for who he really was. I can't live this Christian life in my own strength. I try and try and try. Lord, I can't. But you, you're the greatness in my life. You're the majesty in my life. You're the one to whom all my allegiance, all my love is due. Oh, Lord. You know, it was after that that Jesus told Peter and James and John, drop your nets. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You see, when that process of holiness is taking place in the life of a believer and it's progressively happening, when discipleship is taking place in our life, when our life is characterized as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we begin to see God 
like we've never seen him before. And the intimate fellowship and walk with God, the way we've been designed and created to experience, the, the way we've been made for intimate fellowship with him, all of a sudden happens in our life and we see him like we've never seen him before. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. But when we bucket and we live our own life and we say, I, I, I want to do this, I, I want this in my life, I, I want to do this, we'll never experience that. And God will allow us amazingly to go through maybe an entire life living a subpar existence when we could have this and we end up with this. Oh, we get to heaven because it is a free gift. But our service for him in eternity will be eternally impacted. You see, our sanctification, this side of heaven, is crucial. Holy living is crucial to see him and experience what he has for us in eternity. The bottom line, receiving eternal life is a free gift, but experiencing it and to know him is eternal life, John 17, 3. To experience eternal life is contingent upon our growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus laid out some key truths related to discipleship that over the next couple of weeks we're going to look at just common, we're going to hopefully sit at his feet and we're going to hear him say, ladies and gentlemen, this is a disciple and this is what I want for your life. And then we have to make a choice. Let's pray. Our Father, grant us grace and strength and understanding, Father, in this journey that we are on as believers in Jesus Christ. And I do pray, Father, that everyone in this room is on that, that journey, that everyone in this room has come to a point, Father, where they have put their trust in you and you alone for their eternal salvation, that they have stopped their um, human attempts, their, their self-attempts at earning a spot in heaven, that they have come to a point that they realize it's all of grace, it's all that you have done, and that you have offered a free gift, the free gift of eternal life by simply believing in Jesus. I pray, Father, everyone in this room have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. If there are young people here today, and they haven't yet trusted Christ, I pray, Father, their parents, their mom, their dad, a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle will continue to share this good news. If there is someone here, Father, who has yet to put their trust in Christ, I pray that someone sitting next to them or a, a spouse or somebody will, will, will continue to lift up this good news message. But, Father, help us also to continue that good news message and help us, Father, all as believers in Jesus Christ to live a life of discipleship. 
to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, to move from infancy to, to spiritual maturity in this life because there is so much at stake, not only in the life to come in our service to you, but living a life and experiencing this life of intimacy with you. Oh, that we would see Jesus like we've never seen him before. Father, that we can know you like we've never known you before. And experience, truly experience what eye has not seen and what ear has not heard and all that has been prepared for those who love you. Help us to be disciples for your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.